Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on day 248 of the pandemic, and also just 65 days until President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris take office. We are joined in the bunker this week by my friend and a former guest on the program, Elisa Batista, who is here for a few weeks on vacation. So the bunker has been particularly interesting as we've had a wired reunion here. Great show today. Brad Fox, whose book To Remain Nameless is out now. I will say, I wish you all could have watched the interview because Brad is currently quarantined in Peru. So he was actually outside with a nice jungle backdrop while we talked. His novel was published in May, so right after the pandemic hit. And his stories, articles, and translations have appeared in The New Yorker and the Whitney Biennial. He has worked as a journalist, a researcher, and a relief contractor in the Balkans, Mexico, the Arab world, and Turkey. You're going to hear all of this stuff today. It's such a fascinating tale, and we didn't even get to everything because he's just led an interesting life. But we'll get to all that in just a few minutes. First, as you know, little business. We do two shows a week, every Monday and Thursday. If you like what we're doing here, there's two things you can do for us. Leave us a written review wherever you listen to podcasts. That's how we get discovered. And tell your friends about us. Tweet about it. Put it up on Facebook. Really basically just hassle everybody. We host a monthly happy hour, which you can find at thewritersjam.com. We have some changes coming to that soon, so we'll have all of that information up If you would like to buy the books of anybody who's been on the show, click on the bookshop link along the top there at the website. When you do, you'll be supporting local and independent bookstores, and we get a little bit of scratch back. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter. We have book recommendations, reviews, podcast highlights, and other things going on around the web. And lastly, you can support the entire Solid Listen Network by clicking on that Patreon button. For just a couple bucks a month, you get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and bonus content from everybody on the network. Well, I don't know about the rest of you, but I've been exhausted the last few days. Coming off that election, all the emotions, kind of feel like I've been holding everything in for the last four years. And I know many of you out there have the same kind of feeling. So it's been kind of a relaxing last few days around here. It's been nice to have Elisa hanging around. We haven't seen each other in person in like 18 years. So it's always nice to catch up with old friends. But also, this has given me the opportunity to really think about the show, what we're doing, how we do it, all that kind of stuff, which has been nice because all of this stuff goes so fast, right? We're doing two shows a week. Um, The pandemic is here, so time doesn't have any meaning anymore. Still trying to manage the job and do a little teaching. There's just a lot of stuff going on. And so today and yesterday, I spent time going through Amazon rankings and looking at what people had done 
who've been on the program, how their books were doing. And I just spent the day tweeting in gratitude about things that they've done, achievements that they've had. Stephanie Story's first book has a thousand reviews. I think Melissa Falabino is up over 800. Allison Wood has been blowing up on Instagram. There's just a lot of really good stuff happening for everybody. And it's a reminder that while, yeah, doing these shows takes a lot of time and energy, I also have to take a step back, right, and breathe and go make sure that I'm enjoying the world, the literary world around me and making sure we celebrate those things. I hate the term literary citizen, but that really is what we do, right? Particularly now that everything's online. Being a good literary citizen means both leaving reviews, tweeting about people's work, celebrating them when they're doing that, and not just getting caught up in the day-to-day of producing the show and interviewing folks. Because frankly, when I do the interviews, that's the best moment of my week. Not the producing this, not putting it together, not releasing it. The actual hour, hour and 15 minutes that I get to spend with writers is really the thing that brings me the most joy in the world. But I have to remember, like the rest of us do, as we exhale and try to figure out what is the next four years going to look like, that we also have to take those moments and celebrate what makes other people happy and what relief other people get. And I'm not talking socio-politically this time, like, Today is really just about being a good literary citizen, being engaged with writers, celebrating them where they're at, and making sure that we remind them that we see their success. Because that brings joy to people. I know it brings joy to me. Tweeting over the last couple days just good news from authors. Unprompted. They didn't ask me to do it. I just decided that was a thing I wanted to go do. I started at the top of the list and started looking at what people were doing. And it brings me some joy. And if you follow us on Twitter, if you follow us on Instagram, I hope that brings you some joy as well. And I hope that we'll, in the same way that I do books giving, where I take books off my shelf and just randomly send them out, I really hope that you take some time and tell the writers and authors and people and your, your, the creatives in your life that you see them and you celebrate them because it's a lot of fun. And I know I always sound like Bill Murray at the end of Scrooge when I get into these happy good times, but... I doesn't, you know, I feel pretty good when that happens. And it's fun to get the interactions with people back because particularly now, everybody feels bad about sending good news about themselves because we're in a pandemic and people are dying and, and there are very real issues that we're facing. And so there is this already natural human thing to not want to talk about your successes. But then writers are just, we're trash cans and we're just very bad about celebrating ourselves. And so being a good literary citizen, go leave a book review for somebody whose books you read. Go tweet about something that somebody's done and just give back to the community because creating in all of this mess is really hard. And I can tell you the conversations that we have off air about what you even can create, right? In a time when things are so bad, can you just create what you want to? Or is there a larger social obligation? Like all of these things are spinning in their heads, along with, you know, if they have kids, virtual learning, book launches, all of this stuff, it's really hard. So be a good literary citizen. Tell people that you see them. Tweet something nice about them. It'll make your day. It'll make their day. And everybody will be happier. And really, after the last four years, if we can get a little bit happy, I feel like we should do that. 
So that's all I've been thinking about the last few days as I've been exhaling and sitting back and relaxing. I know you are all here for the interview. I cannot wait for the second rendition of Between Two Brads. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Brad Fox. going to be hearing some sounds in the background like wh- where are you right now <laughs> this is so like my favorite question of this <laughs> right so i'm in the outskirts of a town called tarapoto which is in the northeast of peru and i'm in a little just kind of simple lodge by the side of a river where the, but there's not really any indoors here so i'm just sitting in the middle of this garden <laughs> um so you can see like tropical plants and you know if if uh it wouldn't be out of the question that like a little band of monkeys might, you know, scamper by behind me. <laughs> this is going to be the most so. animal friendly interview that we've had because my dog is uh, decidedly being weird today. And if he starts all hearing right. animals on the computer, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. So how do you end up there? So, <laughs> so um, my partner is a, is a therapist and um, who has been studying with kind of traditional medicine, uh, like she's been studying traditional medicine with a, with a guy from here. And so she brought that down a little group of people who are interested in this. And I just kind of came along for the ride <laughs> and it was supposed to be a 10 day trip. We left on March 8th. And um, so we were up, in a like a medicinal garden family ranch place that's about five hours walk from here up into the jungle. Um, and we were supposed to spend 10 days there and then come back, fly back to New York where we live. And then about halfway through a uh, park ranger. Sh- so we're offline completely, no electricity, you know, living in like simple wood huts and, you know, studying the plants that grew up there. And then this park ranger shows up and says, the military has taken control of the park and sealed the entrances that this country has declared a state of emergency and sealed the borders and halted all domestic travel. And, uh, you know, until further notice, you know, so. So that's what until further notice continues on. (laughs) Exactly. So just now, so we stayed up there where, where we were for finally for like two, three weeks, and then we needed to work. So we came down to this place, which is run by a friend of the guys who we were studying with and, and uh, where we have, you know, Wi-Fi and electricity. And so, yeah, just settled in here and um, the borders are still closed. As of now, we know they're closed until the end of September, but it keeps, it, it, it first it was like two week increments. Now they're doing month long increments. So in like August 30th, we found out that it's closed till September 30th. So we were six when we got here, and then now we are three. So that there's a couple of the people that met. So you can take like a hire a private car, drive 30 hours to Lima, uh, and then get one of these kind of not really State Department organized, but charter flights. Anyway, and so the, the two people that just left because they needed to, they really needed to get back to New York. Um, it took them eight days and cost about five thousand dollars to get home. So it just hasn't been worth it for us because we're working online. And so we're just here. <laughs> so now it's been, it'll be six months next week. You know, I mean, it's, uh, um, so I've been reading a lot in Spanish and um, writing and, you know, it's a whole new life. <laughs> this is, this is uh, the, I, I rarely use the word unique 
because as a journalist, I'm like, nothing's really unique. But in right. the pantheon of this show, this is the most unique uh, <laughs> interview I've ever done. Like in the jungle <laughs> or in the garden, like outside, <laughs> trapped yeah. for six months. Uh, yeah. And are you, you teach, right? Uh, I'm actually not teaching this semester. Normally I teach at City College in Harlem, but I'm off this semester. I'm on a fellowship. So it, <laughs> it all kind of, which thank God, you know, I mean, <laughs> um, so, so that allows me to be here. So I'm just, I'm, I'm finishing a book actually. So I'm, it's, I have, I have like this archive of material that I vacuumed up last winter that I was actually just looking for, you know, a moment to get some time to go through. So that's what I've been doing. Um, which luckily, you know, I have, I have everything so I can just sit here and, and work. But, um, yeah, so I'm not teaching, but normally I do. I teach, uh, I teach creative writing and sometimes literature classes. It's sort of the um, writer's yeah. worst nightmare because you have no excuse for why you didn't get a writing project done. <laughs> That's right. Like, That's true. <laughs> yeah. like, it seems like a it seems like a wonderful thing, and then you're like, oh shit, I can't do any of the like. Well, email, man, <laughs> email. It's just yeah, 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 yeah. you know you know how it is, guys. Exactly. So, I got caught in the subway. <laughs> yeah. uh, so where are you originally from? I grew up in I grew up in Kansas City. Um, oh, yeah, I lived there until I was eighteen. Uh, born in Missouri, grew up in Kansas, so you know, kind of where oh, both sides yeah. of state line. But and, um, uh, yeah, what's your what's your favorite barbecue there? You know, it's all changed. I mean, it's it's somehow the one that I have an affection for is Arthur Bryant's, um, just being super old school. But you know, it was a little bit like when I was growing up. Everybody made barbecue in the backyard, but uh, and then what you would get was you know you'd get something that had a lot of sugar in it that um, <laughs> that came with like an you know like an orange or like a red cream soda, and um, it was fabulous. But I mean, in you know in in the ways that we've changed thinking about how we eat, I, I and I know that people are making barbecue in different ways now and. I met a guy in Istanbul who told me that he had been certified as a master of Kansas City barbecue. And I was like, what are you talking about? What is, what is that? <laughs> who said that? And what does that mean? Right. And did that cost you any money? Because I feel like <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that did not work out as well as you think it did. <laughs> right, 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 right. So you grew up in Kansas so. City. Uh, what did your mom and dad do? Um, my dad worked for like, he was a kind of, worked for a real estate company, managed, um, like managed strip malls and shopping malls and drove us out to empty lots where he was like, someday something will be here that you're utterly uninterested in. (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, and my mom, my mom was a kind of, she was a, she, when I was a kid, she was a portrait artist. She did um, in, in like charcoal and oil. And really? then she eventually went back and, and yeah. And then she got a, got a degree as a, as a graphic designer. And then she worked, she was the graphic designer for a huge um, Midwestern kind of church. So a little bit older generation than the kind of more recent mega church style, but it's a little bit like that kind of a church with thousands of congregants that had, you know, its own publishing activities that needed a designer so she she did that not being particularly christian herself it was kind of funny but um 
you I know, mean, there's you like, know, even the Christians need graphic designers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and did you have brothers yeah. and sisters? Yeah, I got an older sister. Um, she's two and a half years older than me. Yeah, she's she's now back in Kansas City. She she uh, she left as well. There was a time when I was living in Bosnia and she was living in Turkey and my parents' friends were like, what did you do to these children? You know, why did they drove them halfway across the world? But um, she eventually moved back to D.C. and then moved back to Kansas City to be close to my folks. So she's there now. Were you guys close growing up? Yeah, well, you know, the usual, you know, incriminations and fistfights <laughs> and 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 uh, sibling stuff. But by the time we were in high school, we were friends. And then by the time we were in college, we were pretty close friends. And we've been, yeah, we've been close since then. It's um, always interesting. Yeah. Like, my sister's five years older than me and my half-sister's yeah. six and a half. And so we were never in the same place, right? Like, if I was in middle school, they were in high school. Like, they were in different places. So our friendship came later so I'm always fascinated by mm. siblings that actually are like, oh, no, we've done stuff since we were kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we lived in this classic Midwestern subdivision <laughs> where there where there was little public transport and, uh, you know, population was sparse. And um, so you didn't have a lot of choice, you know? I mean, there was like the kids on our block that we that we played games with as little kids, but there was five or six of us, so, I mean... My sister and I were inevitably part of the same gang. Um, yeah. And what, what, so like my sister was a, training to be a concert pianist and I was an athlete. So like she stayed upstairs <laughs> playing the piano when I was in the basement, like knocking shit around. Uh, so like we found so, yeah. a way in this, like we, there were 12 families in the neighborhood. We found a way to not be around each other just because right. of our interests. So yeah, yeah. what were you like? Like, what were you like as a kid? Well, actually, we were like the opposite. So in a sense, I mean, if you're talking about my sister and I, that we, by the time we were like 10, like I was 10 and she was 12, 13, we were both in a theater company, which really? was run out of the, yeah, which was run out of the local university, University of Missouri, Kansas City, um, which was... So both of us were, you know, interested in theater in different ways and kind of were, were theater nerds in high school. <laughs> and, um, but it was also one of the only contexts that any kids from any strata or background of the city would have been in like a truly diverse context. So we ended up like our social scene was from all over the city, ethnicities, race, class, all of that was all mixed up, which was completely abnormal in Kansas City, which is a highly segregated yeah. city. So I mean, we can say that about America. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and uh, of course. And um, yeah. But, but just, in, it, that in, fell in, outside in, of the norm for what was happening in the subdivision. Right, exactly. So in terms of like who we went to high school, I mean, Kansas City has a specific thing because of the state line. So my folks, like so many... Uh, white families moved across. So the kind of organic center of the city is in Missouri. I mean, much of it. And then they move right across the state line where the, where you can, where the, the public schools are better. The public school system in Missouri is constantly losing its accreditation. And it's, it's a total mess because the, the wealthier families send their kids to private school and refuse to pay taxes. Yeah. And so in, in the Kansas side, it's a little bit better. So you have this, very hard division of 
two different ways of organizing society based on the state line. And so because we lived right across in the Kansas side, but kind of socialized and lived and eventually worked and whatnot on the Missouri side, we, we, it was like we were in a different culture a little yeah. bit than, than our high school kids were. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's interesting. My best friend uh, is Mormon and their family lives there. And there's also mm. this like Mormon conclave of people that live there that oh yeah, people don't talk a whole lot. I mean, you don't, you don't see that in the popular sort of discussion of Kansas City, but like that's yeah, actually yeah. how I know Kansas City, barbecue and Mormons. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, we knew some Mormons like, like as in, from our schools and it wasn't, it wasn't, it, 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 it was of the things that were happening among the kind of, the shades of whiteness that were going on it wasn't it didn't strike me as particularly exotic even because it was right. kind of always around yeah so uh you guys were kind of theater kids and how, like how did you get into that like was that just something I have that no you guys idea did I, yeah i have no idea i i, I mean I, I i i can i mean i was always playing <laughs> that around with an instrument of some kind i was always drawing reading i mean i was just like an artsy kid um, but my sister would have started first just because she was older. So there would also have been just the, the, the matter of, of that already being a thing in the family. So my folks being like, do you want to do this? And being like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. You know? And I'm guessing your mom probably encouraged that, her being an artist. I mean, you, yeah, you would think so. I don't have big memories of that. I feel like my mom always talks about it as, as, as if she just let us. She, she kind of watched us and was like, you do what you want. She was fine with whatever but i mean i think on some way she was interested in it yeah and uh it's sort of that gen so, x thing of like the parenting was sort of like 
you know, figure it out. Like, we'll drive <laughs> you there, you know? Like, right, 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 right. Exactly. exactly. We can make it. We'll exactly. be there for the performance. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, so now your best friend lives 45 minutes away? Okay, that's great. Like, yeah. yeah. We'll see if you can hang out every six months, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, until you get a car. So when you get to high school, like, is that is that sort of the center point of your life, like theater stuff? Uh, I mean, nah, I mean, by the time I was in high school, I was also, I was working, like, my high school job was at the local kind of art house cinema. And um, so... So that also put me into a different social world and, yeah. and uh, you know, where I found out about things that I had, I had no idea, you know, French New Wave or whatever, just things that had been absolutely not part of my reality. So even though I was, I was participating in the theater stuff in high school, it, it was already clear to me that it was ultimately funny. You know, the, the, um, I mean, there were, there's some of these situations were just travesties. Like they, the, the, the school did a production of, um, tea house of the august moon um where so they actually put a bunch of white kids in basically yellow face oh god and uh yeah oh and uh i mean it, it was it's it's like when i eventually looked back on it i was just like oh my god think about what that was <laughs> you know and I, right. I kind of had a sense of how bizarre it was and there are some strange stories from that that time it's funny because i i this is not something i talk about very often <laughs> but uh uh yeah there, there were some strange things that went on in that high school theater world that so it wasn't so much like i thought i was part of an artistic thing it was more the general high school culture was super hostile i mean it was a big suburban kind of cheerleaders in the mist like gothic you know american like that is a uh, dated reference experience. i'm gonna have to explain <laughs> that reference <laughs> i apologize for yeah. that. Hey, we're old man but, it happens yeah, yeah i know i know i know but uh, uh but anyway just meaning that so it was a way to be somewhat i don't know to find a somewhat more sympathetic world to exist in as yeah. a high school kid yeah. Well, you know, my school was very small, but I taught in a school that had like 2,700 people in it. And like, there's no culture in a place like that. Mm. It is a, but like you are, kids were constantly yeah. trying to find like, where is the little corner that I can be in here and survive right. this four years? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my, my, my partner, my wife, whatever, um, is from Hungary, but she was a, a, an exchange student in suburban Sacramento, for a for a, you know a semester or a year and she couldn't believe it she 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 so she left you know being a teenager in budapest where you can go around town and yeah. hang out in cafes and go to whatever do whatever you want and then she found herself you know along a highway in a little two-story house and would go to the high school and there would be cowboys and punks and this and that she was like really it's like it she thought it was all fairy tales <laughs> that, that American high school was really like that and was just shocked that 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 was a thing that existed in the world. Yeah. So, Budapest you know. is one of my favorite places mm. before the current regime came in. Uh, yeah, they're doing their best to ruin it. Although right now, actually, there's a there's a in the last couple of days, they've been the, the kids have been like taking over the art school and the theater academy and the film academy because the government's been replacing the. Yeah the administration with their, you know, yeah. idiots. And so there's a kind of nice explosion of, of, of activism right now, which is nice to see. 
I mean, I, I was thinking about it. it happens to us in the States as well, but where, where you, you lose the ability to identify with your own culture because the only thing that is happening is just this nightmare of retrograde, you know, uh, like conservative Catholic, greater Hungarian nostalgia. It's all just miserable. Yeah. So I um, was yeah. asked to speak over there at the Budapest School of Business, like right mm. after the election. And so okay. I came in and I gave two talks and right before I'd been there before uh, and right before I went on stage, <laughs> the guy that the group that brought me over says, look, don't make any jokes about Nazis. And I'm thinking, well, like who, like who does that? But now all I can do is think of like jokes about Nazis. Like I'm going right. to, because the government had sent people over. I ended up being on the front page of the paper because this American was coming over to talk about technology and social media and stuff like that. The government had sent people there to see what I said, to make sure that I wasn't like talking about dissident things. And I was like, well, that's not what you want to get put on stage. Like, right. Like five minutes before you go on stage. So right. all jokes came out of that, but that was like, that was having been there a few times and then having people go around and tell me when they'd find out I was American, like, please tell the world what's happening here. And that was <laughs> yeah, exactly. like four or five years ago. Like, right. you know, it's, it's a, it's a, and it's such a beautiful place too. Like it's this, like, yeah. it's this, like people don't realize it's this bastion of knowledge that goes back hundreds mm. of years, right? Like it sits between, you know, sort of the Western mm -hmm. world and Russia, but sort of exists as its own place. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. So it's very unique. And like when I started going there in the in the mid '90s, and to me it was like this center. Everything seemed so underground, and it yeah. was so kind of rough and cool and urban in a way that that um, was very different from other parts of Europe that I went to. The language was crazy, and yeah. and, and uh, you know you'd get into these wrought iron old elevators with these incredible noir effects and, yeah. and, and the, the giant the statues was, right the statues of the yeah. kings that you walk and you're just like holy shit this is out of some like mythology all right so the joke was somehow that if you went to vienna all of the the carvings on the architecture were all like angels and then in budapest they were all demons you yeah. know yeah. And uh, it had, but it had this like darkness to it that was, the, I mean, in the, in the, in the, the first time I went that cathedral um, down, the basilica was black and the whole, I mean, there's some, a lot of the city still hasn't been renovated, but there yeah. was just this feeling of like this, you know, tar stained ar architect, like neoclassical architecture with these, you know, incredible carvings and yeah, yeah. The best coffee I've had in the world is at a place really? called uh, Miyamano. Yeah, every time I go there, I'm like, that's the place. Oh, yeah, I know that place. Yeah, it's right across <laughs> yeah. from the theater, right? Like, I go there, right, I'm like, right, right. oh, my God, this is the best yeah. cappuccino yeah, I've yeah. ever had in my whole life. <laughs> but what's really strange is, like, you know, you go, and there'll be, um, like, all these high-end stores. And then, like, the first mm. time we went there, we stayed in a place called the Bombed Out Hostel, where literally a bomb had hit this building. They just never replaced the staircase. Half the staircase was gone, so you had to, like, sort of stay near the wall, and you you went up on the third floor, and, like, that was just where you stayed. And the hostel yeah. itself was great, but, like, you know, you open this, like, amazing gate, and you're like, oh, my God, this is going to be amazing. And then you're like, uh, like a bomb fell through this building and nobody decided to put that <laughs> building back together, but the rest of the building is still amazing. Right. And yeah, I just yeah, thought, yeah. well, this is like such a, it's such an interesting juxtaposition and then meeting the people there and just hearing the stories of like the sort of pride that they have in the, 
and the literacy and the, and the art and the culture mm-hmm. that they have created that's so different from the West and Russia because of its, you know, because it's never really been conquered. It's never really been part of either one of those worlds. Mm. Well, I did mm. not expect this to, to end up in Budapest. So we're back in high yeah. school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so as you're, I'm assuming that you, college is like on the venue while you're like, Going yeah, I mean, I ended up, I, 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 you know, I had a weird thing, whatever. I, it, my college experience is, is I, I went to, I, I spent a couple of years at Oberlin College in Ohio, mm. and I kind of left. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, it's like a small liberal arts college that most people really love. I went there because I had some fantasy of, um, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation and, and traditions of American radicalism, which was, I was very disappointed to find out were not really happening. But um, why so? What do you mean? I mean, just the, the, the president of the university had been replaced recently. And so when we got there, they were doing a lot of kind of corporate um, consultant driven reorganization of the of the university yes I not what you problems. think about when you think about Oberlin <laughs> exactly and yeah. I, I even had I had problems with the creative writing I wasn't a creative writing major but I took some classes and I was actually um me and and two other students were removed from one of the workshops because there was this story where um a student a Mexican-American student who was a major wanted to as part of her final reading um present an an essay that she had written about being Mexican-American in the department. And it was going to be critical of the department, and it was going to talk about race, and it was going to talk about things that the department wasn't interested in in being, you know, in listening to or or being public. And so they actually forbid her from reading that piece. And so a few of us kind of got together and protested and made noise um, in support of her right to do that. And then it, it, we actually got blacklisted from the, I mean, it was really bizarre. And uh, so I left there with a very bitter feeling about, I also just, I didn't do well in the workshop world. Like now I teach uh, <laughs> workshops sometimes. And I always yeah. tell my students, like I was kicked out of workshops. Like I, I, have, <laughs> I have a lot of mixed feelings about this thing. So let's see what we can do. Um, <laughs> but Although I left, you, weren't kicked I, out, you were kicked out for the right reason. You weren't kicked out well, of the workshop. So there was, you were, oh. yeah, yeah. Well, there was two, there was two things that happened. So there was one that was this political, uh, ultimately political yeah. problem. And then there was, we were, there was, we were at the same time, I mean, we were we were blacklisted because of that protest, but there was an, another element where we were s- taken out of the main workshop, two of us, and had to meet privately with the teacher because she just didn't like the way we talked about writing. It was the, the kind of more interested, more in experimental something. I mean, who knows? I was... 19 i mean right what my idea of that was at that time but you case, like you, she, she wasn't saying you guys were hostile to other writers just the way you approach no speaking stuff like what she you was were interested like, in yes what you're interested in is 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 I, I i don't really know how to talk to the main workshop about it and you at the same time so you all um i need you not to participate in, in the work in the workshop for the rest shit. of the semester and uh yeah and um so it was just a bad experience. And so I, I disliked workshops. I disliked creative writing culture. And so what they talked about going to Iowa or whatever just seemed to be like a nightmare, just the, the worst about that amplified. But so there was never a, I, I, uh, anyway, so I, 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 um, 
I left a little bit early and I went to like a work study thing in New York uh, where I, I, I worked on, uh, on, I basically worked for film shoots and met with some people independently and turned in writing to them and somehow got credit for that. I mean, it was it's such a sham what in retrospect, but, but what'd you say? What school was it? It was called the Great Lakes College Association. It was just, I mean, basically it's almost like buying a degree. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's so filthy. It's all sort of like buying a degree. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, uh, so just all of the, the money that went into that, just what a, what a mess. But, um, but, but you uh, came out yeah. with a degree. I came out with a degree, yeah. And, what, um, what is it? it, it uh, it's English. Uh, I mean, it was called gotcha. English, something called English, yeah. Which, uh, <laughs> something called English. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I, so by the time I finished, I was already living in New York and working kind of being a PA, second prop assistant, whatever person in the, in the film industry at that time. And that was my racket for, for a couple of years. Until I mean, left, did you mean to end up in film, or is that just like, well, this is how? Uh, I mean, I like, got interested in it while I was a student, and there was a there was a woman that 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 was a photographer, a friend of mine at, in college, and we did these collaborations together where she shot and I wrote, and we did made little short films, um, and so I was interested in that, and yeah, so I sought it out as a way, like I needed to find some way to finagle this credit, these credits. And, uh, <laughs> and so that was the way that made sense and it was cool. And it was a way to make money. And, um, you know, it was like, also it was, it was something that I thought was going to be, you know, you work hard for six weeks and then you have a month off and you can do your own thing. And then like every freelancer finds out, like as soon as that last day of work is over, you're just scrambling for the next job. Yeah. Um, and the anxiety but, yeah. that starts creeping in two weeks before the job is over makes it impossible. <laughs> exactly. <to do> anything. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. 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 So, did so, you go to film yeah. as like a response to the Oberlin thing, where you're like, "Well, this creative writing stuff is bullshit. Like, I want to write, but I'm not doing this bullshit." But you need well, to right. do something. There was, so there was no. There was no. Uh, what, what could I do to go on in creative writing? I mean, I didn't want to go to an MFA. Um, so there was. I mean, I could intern at a literary magazine or something. You know, work. I, 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 none of that was clear to me and the film thing just made sense as, as work and, uh, and something that I was interested in. And, and so that, you know, I, I managed to shoot one short film during that period while I was, while I was working in the, in the film shoot world. Um, yeah. And, uh, and kind of like kept when I, I, so I, so I, I left pretty soon after that, I left New York thinking I was going to go away for a couple of months and I, I stayed away f 15 years. And, um, <laughs> these things happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I ended up in the, I ended up in the Balkans and, uh, and I spent mo most of my twenties in the former Yugoslavia. All right. So and, um, how do you end up in the Balkans? So in my case, in my case, it was, I go to visit a friend of mine in, in, um, in London. I had arranged a work permit in France where I was going to go, um, work in, in, in editing. I was interested in, in film editing. So I was going to go work in an editing studio in France. And I had, there was something where within a year of graduating, you could get a, a work permit anyway. So I had this whole plan. Um, and then my sister at that time was teaching, um, in Istanbul. And so 
I had this idea that I was going to hitchhike from London to Istanbul to visit my sister. <laughs> and how old are you when you come up with this plan? Like 23, 20, something like that? 22, yeah, yeah 21, yeah. 22. Yeah. Um, I remember those plans. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, I, so I got as far as Munich, and, uh, and in Munich I got caught. I had like an epic night that, that I ended up in some bar that went up in like chairs throwing around, being thrown around the room, and, and which had nothing to do with me, but it just was like, you know, bar brawl breaks out, cops smashing people's heads against the walls. Like I'm wandering around, like I, I end up in this, like dozing off in a subway uh, station and get grabbed by the cops that check my passport and don't see a German visa where I'm like, I don't need a visa. It's anyway. So there was just this. And so after that, I was like kind of beaten up. And, and so I got a train from there to Ljubljana, Slovenia, where I had met, I had known some people that I'd met in London. And when I got there, um, I was asking if there was, you know, a cheap place to sleep or whatever. And, and it just in these, in this cafe that I wandered into and they took me to a, they were like, yeah, yeah, my friend will take you. Da, da, da. That put me in a little car and they drove me to this place that was, um, a bunch of abandoned old Habsburg era buildings that were being squatted and used as like a, you know, people were living there. There was a bunch of Bosnian refugees living there and some NGO kids and, just Slovenes who didn't want to live at home, living there. Um, people from very different stories. And, and so I stayed there for a few weeks just trying to figure out what was going on in this <laughs> part of the world. And, um, and what year is this? This is 96. So this is like around... Yeah, so... Like so, so, Slobodan so time? Her, yeah, yeah, definitely. High yeah. Slobodan time. Um, so on one of those nights in that in that squad, it's called Matelko, but it still exists. Um, and it was fascinating at the same time. So I, when I found out more what was going on, it was the old Yugoslav army barracks that had been evacuated because of independence. And so then the city was trying to figure out what to do with it. And there were some interests in people interested in developing it and commercializing it. And then a bunch of intellectuals organized this squatter movement to kind of claim it as, you know, free space. And so you'd have like Zizek sleeping in the, in the barracks one night to try to keep the bulldozers out, this kind of thing. So it was cool to be a part of that as well. And was then that, one night... Some, let me ask, was mm -hmm. that part of the time... Because I know in Germany, like, if you were a squatter, there was, at a certain point, it becomes yours. Was that... Yeah, well, this is... I mean, this is very specific because, first gotcha. of all, it's such a small city. It's a 300,000... It's a city of 300,000. These are 14 buildings right in the middle of the city. Oh, so this was it, not a, it, it wasn't a thing. This was a, we're going to take these it, barracks. Yeah, this gotcha. is, it was a huge, uh, like, part of the city. So finally, the squatters were eventually moved out several years later. I was already gone by then, but there, there was still, like, a bunch of, I think the first, like, gay club, openly gay club was in that. There was still, and some people got, rights to use it for organizations and cultural yeah. stuff. Um, I haven't been there in years, so I don't know what's the current state, but I know that it still exists as a kind of cultural facility. But, um, but so what, so I, but at that time it was just chaos. I mean, it wasn't, there was nothing organized. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing kind of regulated about it. The legal status of it was totally unclear. I mean, so in, it was very different than what was going on in Holland and Germany sure. at that time where yeah. it was like a developed, lifestyle kind of yes. orientation towards civic activism. This is a much wilder kind of gotcha. manifestation. And so some people who had been working in Bosnia just were like, 
we're going to Sarajevo, come with us. We've got a grant to work in the radio station. Like, okay, great. I was a, you know, a, I work, I was a radio, I was a DJ in my college radio. Like I, I have experience as a ra in radio. You know, I'm a 22 year old kid. I have no, no, nothing, but so we, we get it. So, but so we drive to Sarajevo and, and, um, and the, the word was we got there three weeks after the last evacuation. So it was post-war, but it was really fresh yeah. post-war. And um, it was, so it was that summer of 96. And um, so it was still, you know, totally shot up. And it was kind of, just, people were just setting up and things were just happening. So, yeah. And, so that, and that's so how by, you end there. By the, yeah, that's how I ended up there. But so, yeah, so just to finish that part, yeah. then by the time I'm, I was getting a ride back from Sarajevo with those same people, because it was just like we get, went down there for a couple of weeks to see what we could do. I, I was I was traveling with these Slovene journalists, and just from getting to know each other, they were like, "Why don't you write for our magazine?" And I was like, "Sounds great." And so when we got back to Ljubljana, they introduced me to to the editor of this magazine called Mladina. That was the he, the guy. The editor said he wanted it to be like a Mother Jones kind of a magazine. Yeah. And so I became a columnist. You know, it's just one of these things that can happen in their chaotic situations where they gave me a weekly column that I wrote in English and was translated into, into Slovene. And it was basically, I, I mostly interviewed artists um, about kind of emerging from the war and what was going on. And Ljubljana was interesting because it was this, the city where you had people from all of the former Yugoslav countries living there together. So you had people from Belgrade, from Zagreb, from Macedonia, from Sarajevo, all kind of still creating some kind of organic ex-Yugoslav intellectual scene, which I, to me, all of this was totally fascinating. So, so, I, um, so I, did, I did mostly just these interviews, and then now and then I would do like a longer thing on, on different topics. But so I became a, you know, a, a, a journalist, and that was much more interesting than going back to New York now sure. several months later. Or being a film in editor film. in France. Yeah, to like haul, yeah, exactly, to haul boxes for film shoots somewhere. So I just stayed and then, you know, then just life happened. I mean, eventually I started working. When, so I was there already for a couple of years when, um, when the Kosovo airstrikes happened. And so by that time, I, I was interested in, I was kind of like unsatisfied being a journalist at that time. And so I, I, I applied for jobs and ended up working in the in the NGO sector in Macedonia, dealing with the refugee crisis of 1999. So and I'm gonna, I, I want, I want yeah. to jump in here. I don't want you to, because I don't want you yeah. to go too far. I'm going to ask you, a, I'm going to ask you an annoying question. Uh, okay. I had a friend that was over there named Josh Cusera. Okay, I don't know. Okay, he was a journalist. <laughs> literally in that time, he was there, yeah, yeah. covering the so, war, yeah. covering the post-war, and we went right. to graduate so, school together. But he, he left like four weeks into it because he had just been covering all this stuff. It was like 98. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't need to be in school. I'm going back. And like, he went back and spent a decade over there um, mm -hmm. as a, you know, he wrote for American places, but he became really disillusioned with American media. And I think oh, yeah. most of his writing externally, like, for, yeah, yeah, for like yeah. in other countries. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I was. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I wrote for, for French uh, English, Belgian, whatever, Slovene, Bosnian newspapers. But I was also, so I wasn't really, I wasn't in the journalist circuit because I wasn't doing news journalism. Gotcha. And, and then when I was doing 
newsy things, it was from the side of working in the refugee camps or with the refugee populations that were outside of the camps. And that wasn't really, like, you didn't interact with journalists very much yeah. in that world. And um, he covered the war and I think sort of the political stuff that happened after right. the war. Um, right, right. But I just thought, yeah. well, you know, I've been in, I've been yeah, in Europe know. enough to know that, like, and expats tend to find themselves at least in a room <laughs> right. at some point, even if they're different, just because... Like, who ends yeah. up on the other side of the world, like, in a place where these things are yeah, happening? Yeah. I mean, often people are come together because of language. I mean, right. you know. Yeah. Um, but, there's a cafe uh, in Budapest. In fact, I can't remember what it is, but, like, when I was going there, my friends were like, there's an English-speaking cafe. and you, Oh, yeah. It's a bookstore cafe, and uh, everybody that works there is uh, Hungarian, but they're trying to learn English, so that's just right. where people hang out. <laughs> I know that place, but I can't remember what it's called. Either. I can't remember but, um, it either, but like that would literally yeah, yeah. got off. I went and had my coffee and then went over there. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're, so where are you at that point? Like 98, 99, like, are you traveling around yeah. or are you sort of in? Well, one no, place? so I've been in the, I've been in the, in the, in the region for years by that time. Like I got there in 96 and basically didn't leave. Um, I mean, I eventually did go visit my sister in Turkey. You, but you made I it there eventually. <laughs> it took me like three or four months to get there. And then by that time I was already swept up in this, um, in the ex-Yugoslavia. And so I went back, I went back there. So I was kind of between Slovenia and, and Bosnia mostly. Um, I went to Serbia a few times, especially during the protests when there were these big protests in 96, 97, anti-Milosevic protests. I went to kind of participate in that. And, um, yeah. And so then I was there working until September 99, basically. Um, I, I did this big project with the Roma community that had been displaced from Kosovo and ended up in Macedonia. And, um, and kind of when I finished that, I, I went to Budapest where I knew some people and I, and I kind of just was like, Phew. you know, I mean, it had yeah. been so insane and I had, you know, I hadn't slept in months and, and, uh, and so I went, went there and wrote and, um, eventually started applying for jobs again and got another job back in South Serbia and ended up spending another year or two years in Serbia. And, uh, and I wrote a book that was published that I never, I just kind of wrote it for myself. I never sent it around, but some, but a, but a friend of mine in Belgrade gave it to a, to a, a novelist who translated it and published it. And so I, I left finally in 2003, 2004 on with, with, on the occasion of my first book being published in Serbian. And, uh, and by that time, you know, I, I was pretty fluent in the language and all of the events that happened around it, I, I, I did in Serbian. And, and um, yeah, so that kind of completed this, you know, eight-year, nine-year um, That's weird. Journey, you know. That your yeah, first yeah. book was published in Serbian. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Did you know it was, ha- I mean, I know you knew it was happening, but like when you gave it to your friend, did you think, oh, I'm just, he just wants, to, or this person just wants to see it? Or was... No, I mean, it was, I, how did I, I, so I showed it to a close friend of mine who was just like, you know, I heard you wrote a book. I want to see it. <laughs> and, because uh, I was really telling anybody about it. And, uh, and, and so then he, so he read it and gave it to his friend who was a theater director in Belgrade, and she gave it, she was just close friends with this novelist, kind of like the foremost novelist of, of that generation. And um, so she gave it to him, like, oh, maybe this is interesting to you, and he ran a little publishing house. And so, yeah, so he, so, so he translated and published it. I was so thrilled. I, like, the idea that 
I mean, I, you know, it was one of these things where I couldn't believe that it was possible to write a book that seemed crazy to me, you know, just right. when you start your first time trying to get into this, it's stretches off into eternity, like some yeah. incredible po impossibility to the fact of having like a stack of pages that somebody read and translated. And he, right. would, you know, uh, write, ask me questions, which were so, all of that was so fascinating to me, like the minutia of translating and having to stand behind. So when somebody asks you why you made this decision, because they need to translate it properly. So you have to explain in minute detail why you did something in the book. And that's, to me, that was just such a, like an honor and an incredible education in writing also. Yeah. We, so, so our book, I co-authored a book. Mm. Ours was probably not, as, I know for a fact, it was not probably as important as yours. It was about Dungeons and Dragons and how that has influenced the way computers were developed. All these people that, that sounds hugely it. important. We think it is, but it sort of starts with a nerdy premise. But uh, there was yeah. a, a, a translator in Japan who came across the book in English and just sent us a note and said, can I translate it? So we actually went through that where he like, yeah. he did that on his own and they published it at a little house over there. And we were like, yeah. well, how did that happen? Like, I, it's the coolest thing on my shelf is the Japanese version of my book. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is sort of a strange process as you're trying to explain why and what you yeah. did and like how do you sort of even know like in those cultural discussions i'm like i'm just trying to get as close as i can to this right and it was also because the book was about it was a kind of fictionalization of those years that i had spent there so it was about it wasn't so much about belgrade but it was about bosnia and sarajevo and yeah. and, and kosovo and that squatting situation in Ljubljana. and um so so there was a lot of local stuff that needed to be parsed and it was, it, yeah. And then that translation, a section of that was translated into Macedonia or eventually I think the book was, was, was published in Macedonia, Macedonian. And then there was chapters that were translated in to, into um, Spanish and, and Arabic. And so meanwhile, cool. I had never, I had never been published in English. So I had, I had this <laughs> column in the Slovene magazine and I was probably, my book came out in all, like a couple of languages, but I still was like, I was so marginalized and it was a little bit like, I feel like although the internet existed when I left, it was so nascent that it was possible to exist in a marginal way that I think is impossible now. Like yeah. if I, if I left, as a, as a recent college grad from the U.S. now, you would already be so plugged into the U.S. You would be, it'd be impossible to disconnect from the culture right. in the same way. So there is something about like it almost being like the last moment, maybe even the last year when something like that was possible. Yeah. Which, and so, uh, what, so what year does that come out? That came out in 2004. Okay, so you've been uh, there, but, for I, like but what eight, I mean is more like that generation of. Like, no, I totally leaving, understand. Leaving I was just, the U.S. in '96. Yeah, I was yeah. just trying to place like, okay, so that was like yeah, an yeah. eight-year journey that, right. that you sort of went yeah. on, and you know that was also at a time because I remember when we were, my writing partner moved to Berlin, I think around 2003, and you know even still we could get on a train and go to small villages and like you could yeah. you could be unplugged, right? Like right. Right, right, right. And, and like, I specifically never got international phone. So when I'd spend three months in Europe, it's like, well, I'll see you guys when I get back. You know, right. Like, yeah. Yeah. I'm not going exactly. there so I can keep talking to all you. Right. So what happens in 2004? Like, do you stay so, over there so, or are you coming back? So home? 2004, so up to that point, I'm living in, in Belgrade by the end. Because my last contract as an NGO worker was in, was in South Serbia and then in Belgrade. And um, I was in a relationship. Uh, with the woman from Belgrade and we were living there together. And I was a little bit like, 
I can't imagine staying here for forever. So why don't we see if we can go someplace together? And at that time, it was really hard for Serbs to go anywhere. And um, she had a connection actually in Berlin. So we ended up, so we ended up moving to Berlin together. And, and then, you know, in six weeks, our relationship fell apart. She moved back <laughs> to Serbia and I got offered a residency in Brazil which was like also something that I, I could never imagine that still to this day, it seems like one of my great, great successes <laughs> was that I got, so, so I, so the, the foundation like flew me from Berlin to, to Bahia in, in Northeastern Brazil and put me up in this beautiful house on an Island uh, for like four months. Uh, and so it was actually there where we were working out the details of the translation. Uh, like I had signed the contract right before I left Belgrade, but then, the, the, the translator was working on it while I was on that residency. So I was like doing new stuff and at the same time, like answering questions about that and then just being horrified about the Iraq war and uh, being in Brazil and studying Portuguese. And uh, I feel yeah. like you just so, fell backwards into the world. Like, was any of this planned or did you just sort of like, <laughs> no, once you got over there, of, like you're just in the, yeah. you're in the river and the river's taking you where yeah. it's taking you. Exactly. And, and, and I, I think that it still affects me in the way that I, I, I have a very um, limited um, concept of my own power over my own life. <laughs> in a way, I mean, like case in point, like being stuck in, in 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 Peru. Like it's fabulous that I'm here. I'm so I'm so grateful for this this six months that I spent here. But there's absolutely no way I could have decided to do this. Right. You know. Yeah. Uh, and ev everything about it is different because I didn't decide to do it somehow. And my relationship to what's happening. So, yeah, I, I don't know why that is, but that's definitely been like a determining factor of my entire adult life. It feels yeah. a little bit like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, right? Like you're <laughs> yeah, just exactly. sort of like, like Shakespeare's exactly. happening and you're like, I mean, I guess we're I'm here. just a minor character in the wash being, yeah, <laughs> just being blown this way and that way. Eventually I'll end up, you know, disconnected from my head. But uh, yeah, so yeah, how until you... that goes, it'll be an interesting ride. I mean, it seems like a fascinating ride and that you've been in the <laughs> yeah. middle. I mean, it's a little Forrest Gumpy and too. It's just like, oh, and then I showed up yeah. and like all of this was happening. And you're just <laughs> exactly. like, hi, everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 So totally. how, like you're in Brazil, like it, does that is that sort of the, the beginning of the end of the travel? road before you come back to america or no 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 that was so that's no. 2004 i moved back to the states in, in uh 2011 so um so i went from there i'm back to to berlin and was kind of uh, at that time i was working as a copy editor for like a, a i had this guy who would just feed me um rewriting copy editing editing proofreading work for like academic presses in Europe, which is just more miserable work, but was, it gave me incredible freedom. That's what John so, and Amy do. That's what my writing partner okay. and his partner do. Like that it's good right. money. And they're like, it's terrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's a way that, cause you can really like, unlike the film thing where it's like 16 hours a day and madness, it's a little bit like if you get into it, you can grind out this stuff in a very economical way and yeah. leave a whole lot of, of open space in your life. So, so, so and you can also be anywhere. So I could just sublet my place in Berlin and go to Cairo for six months, which I yeah. did, for example, in 2005. <laughs> and, um, and so I spent a while between Egypt and Syria and Lebanon. And um, what is it that's taking yeah. you to these places? Are you just like naturally wanting I'm to just fascinated. I'm fascinated. I mean, I, I felt, I felt, I was also in some way, I, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it was a little bit like I was looking for home. Sure. Um, I mean, I was, and people, sometimes I would sit somewhere like, uh, 
and be like, if I had a home to go to, I would go there. But there was something about my experience growing up. You know, once I left, I didn't know anybody there. I had no connection to the city that I grew up in at all, other than my folks were there. Eventually, my sister moved back. But I mean, I didn't know anybody. There was nothing I could do there. So I was just a wash. And, and I was looking for a situation where I could do something meaningful, try to get some writing done. And so I was just kind of chasing those kind of situations, I think. And I mean, the Arab world presented itself, I, I, I don't know, in some ways starting from when I, my encounter with Islam, I guess, started in, in Bosnia. And uh, so I was interested in cities. And uh, somehow that attracted me to Cairo just as a, a, a place I had never been. But then there was a time when just when I was in Berlin, I used to hang out with with um, this writer named Haitham al-Wardani, who's a great um, Egyptian novelist. Um, and we used to just, you know, take walks and hang out, drink coffee together. And so when I went to Cairo, and then another friend of mine, Kawita um, Rajagobolan, who's another writer on, on the region, this kind of helped me get situated. So I went there, you know, with people and with places, and it was like an amazing way, just without a real deadline just to show up and <laughs> yeah. you know so so I, I was living in this the 12th floor of this old hotel in downtown Cairo that looked out over the old city and um you know paying nothing and uh you know I'd wake up in the morning and there'd be like the Ethiopian national basketball team eating breakfast in the <laughs> breakfast room just like bizarre yeah things and um and uh Anyway, so that, I, I don't I don't know that that it was always just I was always interested in something and looking for that yeah. chasing whatever I was interested in. Yeah. I mean, it's, I came from this small town, and and when I left, I I went back and taught briefly in Cincinnati for like three years, but then I left again, and like basically mm. since I've left home. I accidentally ended up in Indiana for eight years, but otherwise I've lived all over the country. And when I was a professor, mm. I mean, I was like Mark Harmon in summer school. The day school ended, I got <laughs> on a plane and I'd go to Europe because all my friends were in Europe and we would just right. get on trains and go around. And it's hard to explain to people who haven't spent, and I haven't spent nearly as much time as you, but like the lifestyle and the things that are important are just so different over there. And like being able right. to write and read and like interact yeah. with smart folks and like in Germany, like you can go to college for free till you're 30. So like, it right. is not like it is here where it's like a competition to get to Harvard and run as fast as you can and don't right. really think about stuff like yeah, it's exactly. just different. And so anytime yeah. I was there, I was always like, this seems rational to me. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, the quality of life is so much better. Yeah. It's, it's unarguable, you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. hard to explain to people who just like go for two weeks. I'm like, you really got it. Like if you, I, as you know, long as I was there for, was for three months, but I did that like, I think four or five times. So mm -hmm. you know, I've spent enough time to know like, Oh, we've been for a month in Budapest. Like you get to kind of know the city differently than mm -hmm. you're just touring it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it was always to me, like you saying you were looking for home makes complete sense to me. Yeah. 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 So yeah. And it's hard to articulate why. Right, right. Like, yeah. but you know, there are also people like people from my hometown who've never left, and like their third generation, and like that is their home, and that right, yeah, I love exactly. that for them, but it's confusing. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I have my friends in Slovenia who in Western Slovenia whose count, countless generations lived in this same little river valley, and it's so beautiful there, and you know, the food is good, the wine is good, the sea is close, the mountains are close. Like, it seems like a wonderful place to live, and I'm like. 
it's great that they stayed there yeah. forever. And, uh, you know, if I had a different personality, maybe I would too, you know, yeah. but I mean, uh, yeah. Do you say that and then you start itching? You're like, yeah, I can't. Exactly. Yeah, I just can't. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So what eventually brings you back to America? Uh, so, yeah, 2011, I was living in Istanbul with, with, um, with Esther, who I'm, now, I'm now married to. And um, I don't know what, what, what exactly all came together. I, I was working with an with a organization that, that dealt with asylum seekers. I was doing some freelance writing. I was still doing some copy editing. And uh, somehow I was just like, ah, I, 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 I just, I think it's time to go back and engage with my native country and language. And, and uh, no, I actually, no, this, there, was a, there was a reason, was that she, Esther wanted to, um, she was interested in studying with these people in Philadelphia. She's a, she's a, she was trained as a, as a neuroscientist, now works as a as a as a therapist, but so there was a time when she was there were these people that were doing the neuro the neuroscience the neurophysiology of yeah. religious experience. Oh and yeah, so yeah. She, and so she was interested in studying with them, and so she was wanted to apply for a PhD program, and so I was like, huh, okay, so interesting. Like that sounded like a cool thing to do, and so if, and I had never been to Philly, but I was kind of like, so let's imagine what happens if we end up in Philly. What would I do? And I was like, would I you know, go to an MFA program finally and see if I can connect to that world. <laughs> and so I started looking around and I found out and I found um, the program at Hunter College, which was, you know, free and small and, and had, at, when I, it was, so it was uh, Peter Carey and Claire Massoud and, and um, writers that were, had a global or like a not American orientation. And that sure. seemed interesting. So, so I applied to that program. And then over those months, she decided she didn't want to do this PhD program after all. And then, and then Peter Carey offered me a fellowship to, <laughs> of course. to go to Hunter. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I got to do this. So, um, so I moved, I, I, so I went back to visit and I, and to see if I could deal with this, you know, to sit in on a workshop and like see some friends in New York. Like I still had friends in New York for over all those years. And I would go through every, you know, year and a half, two years or something. Right. And, um, and I remember just like, I was staying at my friend's apartment on 111th and, and Lenox, like right at the top of, of Central Park. And I was standing on her rooftop and just being like, this is amazing this is going to be good. We're going to come back and it's going to be, it's going to be good. And, um, so that was it. So I came back to do that. And, uh, and then, so to do that, we got married. And then as soon as Esther got a green card, she started working as a birth doula. And, uh, and so assisting at the births of babies, I say this because this is like background to the novel that, that just came out. Um, so I was, I was on this fellowship at Hunter and she was like, you know, running around birthing babies all over Manhattan and, uh, which was just this amazing way to get to know the city, um, to see people at their most raw and vulnerable going through something completely life-changing and understanding the American medical madness. <laughs> and, um, yes, so, <laughs> yeah, so so that, so then, so, so kind of stepped into that world. And then right around the same time, kind of everything went to hell in Turkey. 
um, where we'd been living. And, uh, you know, I mean, Erdogan was already in power and you could already see what was going to happen in, in, in Turkey, but it kind of turned a corner yeah. in 2012. Then the Gezi protests happened and that incredible um, government backlash to those protests. And, you know, nobody yeah. wanted to be there. I love Istanbul. I still will go there whenever I get a chance. And but um, but we didn't. It just this thing to be in New York it was kind of like we left thinking like I oh, will go. I'll go do this program in Hunter and we'll go back. And then once we got to New York, it was like no, actually we'll stay here. It was just our whole situation was better. So that think, was. Do you think that you'll yeah. keep staying there? I have no idea. I mean, I I definitely didn't plan to come here for six months, so uh, I have no idea when I'm going to be able to get back. You know, so um, so I, I mean, I, I feel very at home in New York and very attached to it, and and I'm very interested in what's happening now, um, yeah. in the sense of of if those you know corporate towers in Midtown are going to be abandoned. Like what what how how is that space going to be used? Like how is the city going to be reinvented? without all the people that don't have to be there because they don't like the city and they can still do their work in a basement in Connecticut or wherever. Like, I'm very happy for them not to be there. And I'm sure they are too. And then the city will be very interesting and different. And I, I'm, I'm very interested to see that. But yeah. I it makes, I haven't I been love, there. So. It makes, yeah. I love Pittsburgh. This is the first place that I've moved to that I'm like, oh, this is mm-hmm. home for lots of reasons. Yeah. But I have this burning desire to move down to New York after this is over because it feels like it's going to be some punk rock shit going on there. If, exactly. if, if it really truly is that like work from home stays a thing, like if we truly yeah. reconfigure how we think about work, there's going to yeah. be so many spaces for, and so many artists that have not been working because everything's been shut down. Like right. you just sense like, Oh, for 18 months, like some weird shit's going to be going on there. Exactly. And like, if you think of Berlin at that time, the early 2000s, the magic of Berlin was 500,000 empty apartments. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, people didn't move there for the weather. You know what I yeah. mean? Like the education system was nice, but I mean, that's all over Europe. I mean, they went there to yeah. get an apartment for a hundred euros a month. And so, you'd walk yeah. into a place and like, it'd be four o'clock in the morning and we'd go downstairs at this club and like John and Amy would be like, we're going here. And like, we'd walk in, I'm like, oh shit, we're in a leather dance club. Like, awesome. Like, <laughs> And it's just like, it's not even a club. It's just like, it was just a place. And that was just where the thing was tonight. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And like, they lived in East Berlin, uh, right Mm -hmm. next to Mauer Park. So it was right, you know, Mm -hmm. right where the wall was. And Mm -hmm. people would put up pop-up bars around there. So like, you'd be walking Mm -hmm. through this sort of maze and things and turn the corner. And there's like big fucking TV and a DJ and people serving drinks. And I was like, yeah, this is amazing. Yeah. yeah, Like I could do this forever. I mean, like New York has a long way to go before it's as unregulated as Berlin was at that time. But just the the idea of a whole lot of empty space, I think gives, uh, I mean, for, for New York city specifically, will change everything. And, and, uh, yeah. So, and particularly if the, yeah, if the prices come down, like they're already saying they're coming down right now, like yeah, yeah. it's just one of yeah. those like new, for me, New York as an artist has always been a place that it's like, you know, that's sort of like the, the north star of where you know, even though I don't live there. Right. So, I mean, there's something about the combination of people that end up there that's just unique. You know, it has an energy that's like nothing else and makes me feel at home. Yeah. And. um it's the you major know, capital so, city, like Berlin, yeah, yeah, uh, Budapest. Like I've told folks, like I've traveled, but I've traveled to major capital cities. That's primarily where I've gone. So I'm like, so I haven't really traveled internationally. I've traveled where international people travel to. 
right? Like you know, that's, that's, that is different yeah. than like getting out into the surrounding areas, but that's right. the energy and vibe that I love because it is so yeah. creative and it is like this mashup of, you know, the planet um, yeah, exactly. in a very real yeah. way. So when do you start working on to remain nameless? Like at Hunter college or is that after? Uh, no, after that. So I wrote, I wrote another book that I had started before I came back that, that, um, I was working on when I was there and, um, and finished within a year or two of, of leaving Hunter and uh, was sending around, querying, you know, it took me a while to get an agent. And we were like, you know, just going through the whole process of trying to get something published. And um, in the frustration of those years, I just one morning started writing a scene. I have like, a long-standing habit of kind of half free writing a lot of mornings. And so one of those sessions, I just wrote this scene that is pretty much exactly um, the, the opening scene of, of to remain nameless as it is. And so it was just one of these moments of crystallization where I saw the, the premise of the novel that it would take place during the 12 hours of this birth happening in a, in a hospital room and that from there you would go all over the world and, you know, span decades and whatnot in this like tightly contained experience. And, and the, the novel that I had been working on before, which, so, so the, the, the two women that are the main characters of to remain nameless were one is a kind of secondary character in in the other book. And one is a really minor character. So, but they were already characters that I had thought about sure. and lived with. And so it was a little bit like once I had that, it was so easy. Like I had, it had, I had lived in my imagination for years already. So I just, I could see it immediately. And I yeah. wrote the first draft that summer. So I, I wrote the, those first couple of scenes in March. And then by the end of July, I had a draft of the, of the novel. This is, I um, always tell, I always tell people who aren't writers, I'm like, everybody thinks that it takes like 18 months to write a book. I'm like, it doesn't like all yeah. that stuff happening before it made, once you know the book, it may take you that long, but like getting to the right. point where you know, the book takes a long time. Right. Like, it takes a long time. And then the actual writing is kind of the least of your problems. That's what way. I mean. You know like, what I mean? Once you know it's, the story, yeah. it, it yeah. happens. It's, yeah. You know, that's never the problem. It, my dad used right. to tell me, he's like, well, you seem like you're miserable when you're writing. I'm like, well, no, I'm miserable when I'm trying to write. Yeah. <laughs> Once I'm yeah, writing, yeah. it's good. Like, it's I, I know where yeah. I'm going. Yeah. yeah. Uh, exactly. And, and, you know, I never, like, I don't believe, um, I mean, everything we write both comes from our life and doesn't come from our life. But this very clearly, mm-hmm. these characters are, like, your experiences in the world have shaped this. But certainly the places that I went and yeah, the, place, and the mean. things yeah. that I did. Yeah, absolutely. So the it's locales not, are. I mean, it was, it was very distinctly like there's a, there's a, there's a minor character in, in the novel. That's, that's a bit of a satirical take on me. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, yeah. but, uh, but the main thing that's happening is, is very clearly not me, which is right. great. And right. um, <laughs> I just meant the locales and, uh, and like it being a very sprawling yeah. sort of like, it is, it is not like the life that you would live. But exactly. But so saying so, so seeing the, the the world that I knew through a character that was yeah. not me was was allowed me to understand a whole lot of things about about the life that I wanted to portray and, and what yeah. I was interested in putting in the book. Yeah. It's, so, yeah. So it was kind of, it was like shining somebody else's light on my own, the, yeah. on the, my own geography. 
yeah. or something it, like that. I'll, yeah. I, my, the, one of the premises of the show is that writers are always trying to work something out. And it's not always a straightforward. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't always look at the book and go, this is the question they were trying to work out. But, like, what mm-hmm. you, like when I was reading, you know, uh, uh, about the book and, and, and parts of it and stuff, I'm like, oh, yeah, this feels mm-hmm. like, like you said, I'm using somebody else's lens to look at this thing that I did because it's sort of an external third party of... You, the, right. your life and like what does that mean what would it mean? you know like all those kinds of things like it's why i think people write. i don't know why else you write i'm sure there's right. other reasons but like i'm always trying to figure stuff out yeah 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 um uh, i mean the, so go, go ahead so I, no go ahead i, I was oh, i was gonna wrap stuff up so if you got something to okay. say <laughs> well, well I, I feel like yeah yeah one, one thing that i just in terms about where the book comes from that i think is mine is that that it's a little bit this character who's a veteran of the NGO world and the humanitarian world and has been in the Balkans and in the Middle East and has seen protest movements that have been crushed and things that she believed in lead to terrible things. And so it's just somebody who's heartbroken and hopeless and pessimistic. And, and so there was something about putting that person in the face of an old friend of hers who's going through labor that seemed to me to be able to get at things that I realized in retrospect, I really, I really was trying to work out as, as you mentioned in the sense of, of like with all of the negativity and everything that's terrible that we've seen, you know, what? (laughs) Right. And uh, and so, (laughs) so in some way that's kind of the, what the book is getting at. That is, and this is how come I don't. This is how come I don't have conversations when I ask people to explain stuff because I'm like, that actually makes sense to me. What <laughs> makes sense to me? I'm like, yeah, yeah. That's, that is the whole point of why you're right. So if someone says like, what were you trying to say? I'm like, what? No that idea. was what I was yeah. trying to say. Like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, yeah. this has not only yeah. been the most unique setting for an interview, but this was fascinating. Like, you are. Uh, have just lived such a wildly interesting life, and I'm so happy that we had a chance to talk and that Wi-Fi yeah. held up. Yeah, 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 me too. Exactly. It was a great pleasure to yeah. talk for hours. Yeah, and but I'm literally was, sad yeah. that no monkey showed up. They were promised know, at the beginning, and then they did not show up. I know. Sometimes they do, but you never know. But not um, today. Yeah. yeah. All right, anyway, buddy. Well, okay. Take care, and let me know when uh, you guys are able to get back home. All right, I will. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it. That was the strangest interview I've ever done, considering Brad is sitting outside in the jungle in Peru. That was Brad Fox, whose book, To Remain Nameless, is out now. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed doing that. And I really wish you all could have seen the backdrop that I had. We were expecting uh, monkeys and other animals to show up at any moment. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard on the show today, do us those two favors I asked you about. Leave us a written review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen podcast queen, Molly McLear. And if you can't wait for our new episodes, they are out every Monday and Thursday. You can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet.
Hi, it's Jennifer, a founder of Go Kid Go and a mom to two kids. Join my family on the story train with calm conductor Birdie each night as we travel through the magic rainbow tunnel to everywhere and anywhere to find the best bedtime stories. Search for Story Train on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank <laughs> you.